Okay, I'm going to do um, an awkward intro, because you're sitting right there. That sounds great. And then we'll uh, start. Sounds good. You are listening to Proudly Resents. Oh, reason. I, I can't even hear you. Well. Hi, this is Sammy Wazell, uh, Proudly Resents. The Cult Movie Podcast. The Adam Biggest Men Show. To all you proudly resent listeners out there, just remember, you can't touch on hospitality. I want it. This is Proudly Resents, ProudlyResents.com. Adam Spiegelman, who else would I be? We're talking today to filmmaker David Giancola. He, uh, I got the name right, David? Yeah, very good, man. Practicing. He is from uh, Rutland, Vermont. He made a lot of cool films like Icebreaker with Bruce Campbell and Sean Astin as a heartthrob uh, ass kicker. And then in 2007, he made the How Many Illegal Aliens that turned out to be Anna Nicole Smith's last movie. He documents all the fascinating craziness that happens in this great documentary called Addicted to Fame, where you can see it on iTunes, Amazon, and you can rent it through our site, proudlyresents.com slash Anna. David, thanks for doing the show, Skyping in. Adam, thank you for having me here. I really appreciate it. So uh, you were saying before we started that they just stole everything from your offices. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They stole, there's nothing, as you can see, there's nothing left in my office because they stole everything. No, we're actually moving. It's interesting. We're moving really because we've been in an industrial space where we've been making TV movies for a lot of years. And I'm more for, focused on my own work. And literally, the technology of movie making has gotten small enough that it's allowed me to have a smaller physical plan. Right, what are you losing? Like I'm losing stage space, but like my camera department which is now digital and used to be 35 millimeter. It used to be, we had a, we had uh, two ultra cams and some Mitchells and, and that used to be two, three rooms. And now it's a closet. Lighting and grip is the same way. I don't need the same amount of lighting to light up a street all the way around. I don't need all the same gear. I can, the laptop that I'm doing this interview with you on, I could post my movie on it. Things have changed. So, you know, we're changing with them. And also I live in, in the state of Vermont where I live, there are no tax incentives. And, you know, in film production, tax incentives are everything. And so I very likely, if I do another feature, it will be in a tax incentive state because there's just no making anything substantial where they're in a state where there are tax incentives unless you're doing micro budget. Well, you're like Vermont's local Hollywood filmmaker, and you're going to leave the states because they don't have any incentive. I've been complaining about that for a decade, but leaving the state for me is a 15-minute drive over to Whitehall, New York, so it's not that big of a deal. I don't quite fit in with the maple trees and uh, the cows and the maple syrup when you're making action movies, so I, I don't know that they're all... They don't consider me quite the national treasure that some of the other fans do, I think. I don't know. They're, they're missing out. But uh, why is it that you're not in Hollywood or New York? Why did you stay or choose to be in... Uh... Rutland. I just made a conscious decision very early on that, uh, I, I mean, I was working in LA and I was working in New York. At that time, you could only do post-production. 90s, late 80s, you could only do post-production in New York or LA. You couldn't afford the facilities to, to do it in your own place. So it spent a lot of time in both those cities. And I just realized that, number one, I didn't like LA specifically. I liked New York a little better. It's just a personal choice, although it depends on the season. <laughs> when it gets freezing here, LA is looking pretty. It gets really cold, yeah. Yeah, it gets really cold and really long and really dark here, and sometimes really suicidal. But no, no. But so you know, it's one of those things where I just decided, hey, I can be a a, a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in the ocean. That is LA or New York, and that worked out for me. What would have been some of the advantages to being in Vermont as opposed to coming out here? 
back in in the early 90s, late 80s, when I made my first feature, announcing that you were going to make uh, your an indie feature, even though it was still very rare anyways, because you were shooting on 16 millimeter and you, you're borrowing funds. But I, it, it was still very, very unique out here. True of any state that was not a major metro area. And I was able to get a lot of free help and a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of support. And also, it's it's a lot cheaper to live out here, too. And let's be honest, a place in New York or L.A., I mean, living expenses just are, are so much more in each of those places. I can live a lot cheaper. I mean, I can heat my house with, I mean, I don't, but I could heat my house with wood, you know? What are some of the, I just love the stories about uh, cheap filmmaking, last-minute filmmaking. Like, do you have any stories like that, things you've had to create I mean, out of nothing? I think that's probably why I never... I tried to get out of being low-budget or independent filmmakers because I love that. I, I did at one point, our budget started to rise up into the multi-million dollar level. What I found out was, as a director, I had a lot less control over the finished product. That took a lot of the fun out of it. And I remember this was Jesse Eisenberg, who's now a big star, his first feature film role. I cast him in his first role. Myself and John Schneider from the Dukes of Hazard, and uh, Barbara Crampton, who's known as a B-movie star, too, who's from Rutland, by the way. And we had this scene where on this TV movie where it was a movie about Killer Lightning, which is a multi-million dollar movie about Killer Lightning, guys. This is a dumb thing to be making. Let's not take ourselves just do seriously. So somehow in all the rewrites and all the producers, they had forgotten that when the mayor shows up, which was the character played by Barbara Crampton, that we had rewritten the ending so we blew up half the town to save the town because there was some stock footage that would just amply add production value to the movie and it was three o'clock in the morning it was a night shoot and we realized the script was really deficient in terms of everyone acknowledging we just blew up half the town and so jesse and john and barbara and i improvised this really what i consider to be the best scene in the movie and we saved everybody's butt there were no executives around at three o'clock in the morning because the executives you know they don't stay on night shoots i got my ass reamed for that so bad for going off script no Save, even though we saved the movie, even though what we did actually turn out to be one of my favorite parts of the film, we uh-huh. you know we, we dovetailed back to the beginning. It was it was it was a really well controlled improv, and forever I was on the blacklist for those movies because I did that. But that's what I like about it is that you just come up with this kind of way of dealing with problems, and that creative freedom. And then you know after that movie, I jumped back to some lower budgets, and I had a lot more fun doing that than I did doing some of the bigger ones. For, what about cheating? Have you shot, you know, you watch some movies and you're like, oh, this guy obviously cheated. Like, you know, Day for Night is the obvious one. But actually, the answer to that question is, what if I, when, when am I not cheating? <laughs> I mean, I've shot entire movies set in New York City up here. I mean, I cheat all the time. The, the, only, the only problem with cheats are sometimes you go too far because you yourself believe you can get away with it. There's always that audience out there, especially the audiences that are tuned into B movies that'll that'll straighten you out real fast online. This audience, actually, have you gotten caught before? I mean, do you? Times. I've 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 uh, I pushed the New York thing too much, certainly. How's that? The maple syrup in New York City? Well, no, no. I mean, I did a movie that was uh, at least partially set in New York City, and I tried to do. I tried to cast a Vermont actor as a new tough New York cop and he had the wrong accent and he said, no, this is freaking crazy. And it just, it was, it was all wrong. And I, I, I should have caught it and I didn't because we were faking so much of it. So move your car. <laughs> One of those was like, come on, this is not a New York cop. You know? <laughs> it doesn't sound like a New York cop. So no, this is wicked hard being a New York cop. And you can only green screen so much, but uh, God knows. Been doing a lot of it.
And then before we get into the film, I had read that you shot a lot of um, bar mitzvahs and weddings and stuff like that when you started. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that, you know, I don't know if I should even admit to, but I mean, that's how, you know, I didn't go to college for filmmaking. So I was rather arrogant when I got out of high school and I just want to start shooting. And I'll tell you, to learn the do- the craft of being a documentary or a news filmmaker, there's nothing better than doing weddings and bar mitzvahs and that kind of a thing. Because if you miss those moments, those critical moments in the ceremonies, you're dead, man. It's worse than it's worse than missing a murder on the news, you know. <laughs> there, but when the, the the mother of the bride pays you to be there, and you're in an enclosed church, and you don't get the vows right, you're dead meat, man. Don't, so I think it's I think it's a great training ground. And yeah, I did it for a while, and uh, and you know I, I look back on it fondly. But I, there was a point where I just said I can't do this anymore, you know. Right. And then, and then I moved on, and and then and then I did commercials until I just said I can't do commercials anymore. You know, same kind of thing. What did you learn from doing commercials? Uh, the customer is always right. Um, and I worked with some, and I think doing commercials and industrials was really good because it honed my commercial instincts in terms of you know how to make an image look polished, polished, and also. In working with all these advertising people, it helped when I started to do my own features. I was, I had a bit of a marketing, you know, some marketing exposure, which helped out. Um, so, but definitely, the customer is always right. And I also learned, and you, you, you see this in any local commercial, that the cheapest, cheapest trick to make a successful commercial for the customer is to put him in it. So, mm-hmm. have you ever seen the car dealerships where, hey, it's so and so, and I'm down here ready to sell you a car? Well, that's so, you know. Everyone will tell, will say, "Hey, man, I saw you on TV," and he thinks the advertising's working, and they'll keep buying ads, and that's what they—that's that's the the first trick I learned when I got started. I heard that uh, I knew someone who worked in radio. He said that was the trick was to put the guy in the ads. The guy in the ads, so his friends will say, "Oh yeah, I heard you on the radio, man." So let's talk about this movie, uh, Illegal Aliens. It was a, a comedy, and how did you get Anna Nicole Smith involved? Where, where did that idea come from? Well, you know, we were, it was, it's a, it's a riff on, on Charlie's Angels meets uh, kind of Men in Black or something. And, you know, we were just kind of working on a bunch of different ideas. And to be completely honest, to roll it back a bit, the, the movie, the movie was always in my mind because we own a library of films. We had done a lot of action films and genre films. And, and, and I had always wanted to, a la Roger Corman, um, come up with a way to take all that really expensive footage I had of chases and explosions and work them into another movie. And the, the, I couldn't get a screenwriter to lick it and actually no screenwriter really wanted to touch it. And then I finally thought, well, Hey man, hot chicks, I need hot chicks. If it's hot chicks, explosions, car chases, how bad can this be? You know, at least we'll fulfill a certain popcorn chomping DVD genre thingy, whatever. And then, uh, I got some investors and I got some people excited and then we started to go into casting. And at that time, you know, everybody knows Anna Nicole Smith now she's passed away and she was up on the Supreme court, but back then her career was not in good shape. And I always like to say, if you're working in Edgewood studios, your career is either on its way up or on its way down. And that, and that's true of Jesse Eisenberg. That's true of Sean Astin. That's true of Bruce Campbell. I mean, so Anna's career was not on its way. It was really not in good shape. And so I actually blurted her name out in a casting session. I think, as I say, an addicted to fame. And the casting director, no, I think we can make that work. And then that turned out to be them coming to us after having read the first uh, or the finished draft of the script and, and wanting to invest, which I was really wary of to begin with. But it felt like it might work. I mean, it might, make, might work on a bunch, of di- a bunch of different levels as a B-movie. 
Um, I had no idea what I was about to get myself into. If I did, I never would have done it in a million years, but that was the plan at the time anyways. But watching the movie, it doesn't feel like you would have had control over even if she wasn't an investor. Do you know what I mean? Did you feel like? No, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, you know, I think at one point I say in the movie, you know, she, she's, she's making it harder for us to make the movie, which doesn't make any sense because she's got her own money on the line. And, and yeah, it, it didn't seem to make any difference. You know, at the end of the day, I always thought that at the end of the day, I, I, and I had my backup plans, one of them being what turned out to be addicted to fame, but I always figured her having her money in the movie was a way to keep her on the set, at least until completion. It didn't turn out that way. Yeah, explain to everyone what happened and, and why you needed this backup plan. Well, first of all, she was, you know, when you do a movie uh, and, and you have your, your fan base is people who watch these movies, they know, you know, if you have movies, um, you're making a huge investment. So you go to insurance companies and bond companies and the actors get bonded, they have physicals and, and um, you know, so if, God forbid something catastrophic happens, uh, an insurance company will pay off your movie. In this case, I had Anna Nicole Smith and I had Joni Chinalauer, both, both had a history of drug use. Um, Anna had already been admitted to the hospital for an overdose twice by that point. Uh, so they were uninsurable, so nobody would bond the movie. So I was going to lose the whole project, and I came up with two ideas. One was already in the script, which was Anna can turn into objects. She's an alien who can morph into anything. So if I have to, I'll morph her into a banana or whatever I need to, or another actress, and then I'll make a big stink out of it, get the publicity. And the other one was that, and, and this was something we worked with them on with Howard K. Stern and, and Ray Martino and Anna, um, we decided to film the making of the movie. And um, I mean, for real, you know, with two cameras running all through the shooting two weeks before, or two weeks afterwards, some of the post. And that was part of the plan was that it was all it was it was interesting because they were part of that plan. Um, but it was also designed to keep them from going off the rails. It was my backup that, OK, if God forbid something happens, she freaks out, she ODs, then I've got this amazing behind the scenes story. If um, if we finish the movie, then I've got my video press kit and then some. That was that was my risk to it. So you know, the, the problem was, was that after everything happened and it happened, you know, the, the Supreme Court happened during the movie and, and her son and herself passing away, overdosing, happened after the movie. And the way it happened, it soured the movie in a way that I didn't even want to look at the footage for a few years and didn't. You know, it wasn't until that I, I opened up this, this, this box full of hundreds of hours of DV footage that I kind of went, Wow, there's a story here. We should dig into this, and uh, and another two and a half, three years later, here we are. We're addicted to fame. Finally, what made you open up this stuff and make this documentary? The long Vermont winters to begin with. <laughs> you know, I was. I think I. I think I was moving some some material around and realized had not. Re I had not realized because I was not shooting the material myself. I didn't realize how much, you know, those little DV cassettes we shot on DV. It wasn't HD. Those little DV cassettes, uh, mini DV. I didn't realize how many hours we had shot. And so I just picked out a few of them to look at them, threw them in and, and um, started looking at some of the footage. And then I found a few compelling things that I'd forgotten about Anna and a few compelling things about the story. And then it, it just, I just kept looking at more and looking at more and looking at more. And then I decided to start an assembly. And then from that, I mean that the initial assembly of addicted to fame was I think four and a half hours long. Um, mm -hmm. because there were so many, there were, I mean, the prop guy had a story arc in that one, you know? Um, so then I had to choose, I mean, I'm, I'm not a documentary filmmaker, to be honest, I'm a dramatic filmmaker. So I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. And I had to kind of, um, talk with some of my friends who were documentary filmmakers, let them look at it and go, okay, Dave, you need to 
first of all, I think the first thing, the best advice I got was take take all the anger out because it was the first cut was very angry. You think I'm angry in this one? I was nothing like the first cut. What were you angry about? I mean, I was bitter. I mean, I, I got to admit, I'm not bitter now. Um, I, I, I'm very at peace with it, but probably through the process of making the movie. But I was very bitter that um, that Anna had cheated herself and had cheated all of us. Um, and I was bitter at the way we got portrayed as being, um, and we're still getting portrayed that way, which which is infuriating as, as uh, people exploiting Anna Nicole Smith. I mean, we were in business with the woman. Um, you know, she was part of the she was part of the gag, man. You know, um, it seemed like if I can just say like yeah. the E show and everything like they everyone and you even say that she, people worked her, but she knew how to work other people. Absolutely, yeah. And 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 just an example is like when Heath Ledger died, no one said, "Well, we can't release this Batman film." Exactly, exactly. And that's yeah. Michael Jackson dies, and they cobble together a concert film. I know the guy who shot that footage. They they did. They cobbled together that concert film and it was a big hit. There's a huge double standard between the studio releases and you know and and how they handle that and their gigantic PR, you know, um, armies versus you know a guy like me who's doing it on my own. I mean, they just Whitney Houston passed away, and you've already got. They just released Sparkle. You know, and right, they didn't cancel Sparkle. Didn't cancel Sparkle, and no one said Sparkle was exploitation. And Sparkle got nice, nice reviews because she's dead. And they've got, uh, you know, what is it? Her, her daughter and her family have got a reality show, and no one's charging exploitation at them. You know? Right. I mean, come on, man. I mean, this is, you know. And I think what really bothers me now is that, like Heath Ledger dies. That's a good example. You know. But they, they always run, the media runs a celebrity playbook where Entertainment Tonight is, is really very guilty of that. They'll, celebrity dies and they'll get two weeks out of it, at least, if not more. You know, you watch. They, I watch it with a pit in my stomach going, oh my God, here they go. Here they go again. I worked on uh, Inside Edition. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, and, but you talked to a lot of those shows to try to work, before she passed, to, to try to work the film. First of all, we were, we were getting attention Anna was getting attention before she passed away, which was amazing to begin with. And then after she passed away, it reached this crazy fever pitch to the point where I really got to know some of the people on those shows, some of the producers on Inside Edition, and I got to know Bonnie Teagle and Entertainment Tonight really well. And um, they're not bad people, but I just don't know that they understand or care how far down they've gone in terms of, uh, you know, shaping, you know, how we perceive celebrities not as human beings. Yeah, I don't. Being on that side and being the people who would call you, like I don't know if that's the angle you're looking at. You know, I think to be honest, and and I got this feeling from watching your movie that you're using each other. Like we needed the footage, we needed some reason to put Anna Nicole. This is, I was there before Anna Nicole, but you know, we why get Anna Nicole on? Well, here you go. We have this film, and uh, right, and and you need to promote your film. So we would. And we wouldn't do it to promote your film, to be honest. We would show what we needed. And you, you talk about that, how your film clips became B-roll for this tabloid fodder. Yeah, no, I mean, that's true. And and, and I think there's a, you know, I think that there's a mutual, um, there's a mutual exploitation that's kind of implied in the media and in movies and entertainment in general. I mean, when's the last time you saw anybody on any, even a news show who wasn't actually promoting a book or something? You know, let's talk about this subject. And by the way, he has a new book out, you know, from the David Letterman show to even Charlie Rose. 
you know, that's, that's the way it goes. And that's, I mean, that's, that's how that, that works. And, and I'm not so much talking about that, but that kind of dehumanization that's going on now where we're watching, we're, we're watching people. Um, I, I can't stand to watch much of it. This, this little honey boo boo child, you know, that's, I think we're headed more and more that area. And, uh, and I don't think that's a particularly good thing. And, and, and specifically, I get, I've gotten asked, um, I've done some of these interviews. I got asked a lot about, um, her daughter, Danny Lynn doing the guest jeans shoot. I, I think that's incredible, an incredibly bad idea for a six year old. Um, why do you think it's bad? And why do you think her father's doing it? I, I know why her father's doing it because I ran into a father in LA, um, while they were doing it. And, and he lied to me about what he was actually doing. He had a, some crazy story, but he had apparently just come from ET um, just after he'd done the shoot. And he's doing it because he needs money. The, the estate is bankrupt. Um, and I'm not her father and um, I don't get to make those choices. So I'm not saying that, 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 you know, I'm just saying this is how I feel about it. First off. Also, um, she's such a sweetie. She's a gorgeous little girl. She's really beautiful. Um, the best thing I can say, the best way I can describe how I feel about it. Um, I, I've got kids of my own. And I wouldn't put my six-year-old under that kind of scrutiny. I don't talk about my children in what I do. And the I was listening to on uh, National Public Radio that the editor, one of the photo, one of the major photo editors of Vogue magazine, was saying that they don't use models under the age of nineteen. And the reason being is that um, modeling, she said, "quote messes with your head, messes with your your body self-image and and your self-image." And so. In order to survive being a model and doing that whole thing, you need to have a pretty well well built sense of self, and that usually doesn't happen until you're about nineteen or so. And I'm not saying that that you know child model models and child actors shouldn't exist, but if you look at the track record, it's pretty treacherous turf. Brooke Shields, right? Everyone else. Brooke Shields and and you know the, um uh, who who just did a she did an essay. Jodie Foster did an essay. Um, about it when they started going after Kristen Stewart and uh, and and she was saying hey these are human beings we need to, to take stock and she took a, and then I watched the chat that took a lot of flack and then I'd forgotten this is a woman who had a real stalker you know John Hinckley and that whole right come on this was this was bad times you know this is a woman who knows um, so I just you know I, again I, I think we just need to be careful where we're going with all this where do you think or to go back to where do you think you guys when one di different for your film with Anna Nicole than all the other examples you gave, the Michael Jacksons and Heath Ledger and Whitney, what was different about you guys? I mean, it, it, you've seen the movie. The movie's not really Anna's story. It's really my story, and to a lesser extent, John James's story, and how we started off not innocent, but we started off with the best of intentions, and it just dragged us down this rabbit hole where we really kind of got seduced and thought we were thought we were the seducers at one point and uh we saw a convergence of these forces come come on to us and they kind of left us i mean for we, neither of us worked in the business for a couple of years after that intentionally just not wanting anything to do with it and i think that I, I mean first of all i'm not trying to tear anna down i'm trying to show truth and i want to hark back to you know things like um you know movies like network um or movies like broadcast news where they were talking about truth in 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 what was going on in the media and i think we're so far from the truth now it, it's or or, or or additionally we're polarized politically it's hard to divine anything that's clear i used to as a kid watch walter cronkite and i think everybody could watch walter cronkite and go okay that's the way it is that's what he used to say and and now 
I mean, I don't trust um, any of them. You know, I mean, is there a newscaster now that you would you would look at and go, yeah, okay, I, you know, I mean, is there anybody left? Well, like Brian Williams is doing comedy. He's doing SNL and sketches. Yeah, and I, and I like Brian Williams. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I think, and you know, Brian Williams, you know, came off fairly well in Addicted to Fame as one of the few. But there's a scene in Addicted to Fame that I, I hope everybody gets it. There's a scene where Katie Couric is reporting live. She's reporting from the Fox News or her competitor. She says she's doing it. And then she continues to speculate, and you can tell that she's not really into it. No. And I'm like, that's like an all-time low for news. I mean, there's no fact-checking. There's no anything. She's reading it from the Fox News ticker. Right. And it was like the rush to get in the story about Anna Nicole's death, who is is the death of someone's mother and someone's you know lover and husband. Exactly. And then and I got told, and and I got told by uh, an LA radio station. I don't I don't know what it was, which station it was. Um, but they, they put me on the air live, didn't tell me, then told me. And what do you mean? They just called like a pre-interview? They didn't pre-interview me at all. They, they called me and said, can you give us your reaction? And, and I, and I, and then told me, and I didn't know she had died. And, uh, and they didn't tell, I didn't even know. And they had me live on the air. I mean, it's a good thing I start spouting expletives because, you know, I mean, I, I didn't know I was live. They didn't tell me. What station I, was it? You can say now. I really don't know. I know it was. I know it was an LA station, um, uh-huh. like a, But I don't know. I don't know which station it was. It was. I was a guy and a, was a man and a woman. Is all I know. <laughs> That's every show. Listen, yeah, which is every. I'm not saying that to be vague. I was in shock. You know, I was like, I mean, I think I hung up on them if I remember correctly. It was just kind of like because I hung up on them because I realized I was on the air live and they're asking me how I feel about it and I just found out. You know, um, and I was feeling a lot of things. You know. And John James explained he the other he produced that film, The Legal Aliens, with you. Yes, right. Yeah. John, actually, the, the, John and I had two scripts. One was called Robo Dog, which was a nice family picture, and that was the one he wanted to make. And I had Illegal Aliens, which was the other one, which was the kind of you know funky, funny, you know, uh, bouncy, jiggly action, crazy movie. And he said, "No, let's make the family movie. It'll be safe." And I conned him into making. Illegal aliens. So to this day, he says we should have made Robo Dog, Dave. We just should have made Robo Dog. But it begat this movie, Addicted to Fame, and and you know, the screenings with audiences have been really satisfying, and and we find that it stimulates the dialogue as to a lot of different things in our culture, and that's good, you know. And certainly for a movie of, of you know, based on for, for film for a movie maker of of my stature, I, it's really edifying when people are not just looking for mat lines and, uh, you know, continuity errors. They're actually engaged in the movie creatively. So that, that's really gratifying. I'm watching the movie and she's not showing up and she can't read her lines. And I'm like, she's on drugs and you don't say it. No one says it. Can you say that now years later that you thought, well, well, there's a, there's a very, first of all, someone does say it in the movie and, and he says it under oath in court on entertainment tonight. And that's Larry Burkhead. Um, and he uh, is is probably the first one who, who doesn't want anyone to talk about Anna Nicole Smith being on drugs. But he was he was saying they just he, there's a there's a quote in the movie where he's under oath in court saying they just kept bringing her more and more drugs and she's doing more and more drugs. I don't say in the movie specifically that she was on drugs because I did not know when she. I mean, I knew she was taking drugs and I knew that she had overdosed. But I couldn't tell because she was bouncing between this crazy character. And then sometimes she'd be very, very lucid and very engaging and interesting. And some days she'd be bombed out of her mind. And some days she'd be this character, Lucy. And 
after a while, I really couldn't tell anymore. Um, and uh, so she's such a good actress that you didn't know if she was Lucy or Anna. No, I, I think that I think that you know when look, I talked with someone um, at a Q and A who was a treatment specialist, and she said because they were like, "Do you know?" And I said, "You know, you don't see people on movie sets take drugs." At most, I, the most I've ever had was a wardrobe person coming to me saying, you know, the, the, and this was not Anna Nicole, this was another actress on a different movie. She said, her arms are covered in track marks. So as a director, you kind of go, okay, great. This girl has a, has a heroin problem. You know, I, I didn't see Anna taking methadone or whatever she was taking. Um, the, the most she ever said to me was, you know, she, she couldn't get her lines out and she joked, she, my trim spot hadn't kicked in yet. That was, you know, I don't know if that was code for something or what. But uh, she was obviously up and down and on and off. But, you know, who knows? But that's the problem with addiction. You know, you, you don't see people, especially popping pills and things like that. You don't see people do it. They go into their trailer. They come out of their trailer. There's some great stuff about Howard K. Stern, who was her lawyer and then husband for a minute, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, they did a commitment ceremony down in the Bahamas. It wasn't really legal, but they did this commitment thing supposedly to cheer her up, but I think Howard was trying to quiet the frenzy for a while. What frenzy? Just that she was out of control? The media frenzy of her being out of control and after Daniel died and, um, you know, I mean, literally there were, the media frenzy was all around her house. I mean, there were people on plat platforms with cameras trying to see the baby and uh, it wasn't dying down. Then we're fighting over, the, over who is the daddy, all that stuff. And I don't know if you want to speak to this, but do you feel like his presence helped her or hurt her or how did it help her? I don't want to speak for Howard because Howard and I, well, we, the last time we spoke was a, a couple of weeks ago and we used to, I, I'd seen him about once a year, we'd have dinner in LA. Um, and I know he's not happy with me right now um, for obvious reasons. Like you said, like you said, you don't personally say she did drugs. We, we see clips of important people saying on their oath, but you're never that awful about Howard. He, you, he did what he did, and you're honest about it. And you don't even show like the worst things that he could have done. What was he upset about? I mean, I didn't see uh, Howard. Well, Howard was a mess after when I saw him in the Bahamas. This was a while after Anna died. He looked really bad. He was very upset. Um, he, he, and and he, and frankly, he never has. Even the last time I saw him, he never has quite regained his body weight even, you know, he just is a mess. I mean, and, and I know he's been through a lot personally. I don't know what went on behind closed doors between the two of them. I do know that, that he loved Anna Nicole or there, or, and I don't know if she loved him back the way he loved her. I'm not sure if that was unrequited or if there was more going on there. Um, but he was very protective of her and I know he deeply cared for her. Um, was it romantic love? I don't know. Um, but I don't think he intended to hurt her. But like a parent who can't get their kid to stop to get off drugs, you know, you, you got to be careful that you're not an enabler at the same time. Now, I'm not saying he was, but I'm saying that's part of the problem. I mean, they've already disclosed that, that he, you know, he got drugs in his name that, that apparently she used. But again, I don't know what of that is, is truth and what isn't. And I know there's a political level to... Um, your phone shouldn't go off in an interview. That's really bad form, right? Oh, that's so unimportant. Listen, I, I'm from L.A. We're always on the phone. I just, you know what it is? It's terrible. I don't know how to silence my damn phone. There we go. Like that. It's silence. <laughs> so, uh, so where was I? I'm sorry. I'm very sorry about that to your, your, your audience. Oh. Uh, technically really inept. Um, you know, so Howard loved her. You know, I know Howard loved her. 
Um, did he make the best choices for her? I don't think all the time, but I know that he loved her and he meant the best, you know? Um, I, and, and I'm sure he would, he, I'm sure he'd like her memory to go down as Marilyn Monroe whitewash, whitewash land, but I don't think that's productive for anybody, including her daughter. Right. I think it's the truth. Why is that? Because maybe, you know, knowing some, and I, and I know other actors and actresses and, and people who are, who are not professionals in the industry who are at peril with drug use. And especially with celebrity, there is this kind of active codependency that happens um, or this blindsidedness that happens that, uh, you know, that kills. You know, people have died. I mean, we just, you know, we, they're, they're Amy Winehouse, Whitney Houston, Heath Ledger. I mean, they, they kick off. I had a reporter tell me that, you know, they, they, Lindsay Lohan's, um, her, her um, obituary's already been written and rewritten four or five times with all the entertainment shows. They're waiting for her to die. They're waiting for her to overdose. I mean, she's on the brink. That girl's on the brink. I mean, you know, she just got, again, she finishes Liz and Dick. She's on the comeback. And then she gets arrested, what, two days ago, three days for ago? Two different things. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I, you know, maybe we can tell the truth for once and maybe th things will start to get better. I don't know. Will you hire Lindsay Lohan for your next film? No, life is too short. I've already I've been, asked that. I've been asked that. It's funny. I've been asked that a couple of times. Um, life is too short. Maybe if Dr. Drew came on the set, you know, and he stood. No, I have no interest in going. I'm, I don't. I have no interest in wading into those waters again. It was suggested that we do Illegal Aliens too, and and one of the one of the investors did this half joke and he said, look, David, we'll do illegal aliens to find the most at risk, you know, celebrities, you know, put them all together. I said, no, man, no, we're not doing that. So people uh, find illegal aliens. Is that out? Illegal aliens actually right now is out of distribution. The only place you can find it is um, we put it up because it's not in distribution right now. It will be out in March on DVD. Um, you can find remaindered copies, of course around on the internet but we do have it available at edgewoodstudios.com and addicted to fame.com um if people want to find it but it's not in distribution actively right now we expect it to be because of the lead time that it takes um we expect it to be available by march on dvd and downloads and all that and what is your next film do you have any ideas you know the the coda in the end of the movie is the truth people have a hard time believing it i do manage a car rental place during the day right now it's a it's a family business um and i'm here at edgewood studios i'm you know i'm still i manage our the film library here at edgewood and uh and i'm looking at some other stuff but it's true i mean i'm doing I, i'm looking to do something good you know continue to do my best work I've, I've done a lot of b movies and i might do more b movies but i'm i'm gonna finish getting addicted to fame out to its audience and then my plan is to uh step back for a couple of months and find something great to do next um, because it, it was the feeling of screening addicted to fame with an audience that really responds to it is something that, uh, it's, that's truly intoxicating and that's a worthy goal. And that's what I'm going for now. So I know there's a standard answer to that, which is, um, let's see, what is it? It's, I have uh, multiple projects in various stages of development, right? Yeah, I don't. So I'm working on that. And uh, how long, cause you said that you and your, the other producer, you guys kind of quit the business. How long did did you do that? Before, did you try to hang on until you're like, you know what, I can't do this anymore? 
and I'm going to go to the car, my family business. We, uh, well, I mean, I quit for a year or two, and then I did a, I produced a Hallmark TV movie called Moonlight and Mistletoe. And then after Purdue being the producer on that, not the director, I just said, okay, that's enough. And John had, had said, that's enough before me. Um, he's pretty wise about that stuff. And, uh, and I found a certain uh, clarity in, in, in doing non-entertainment things in terms of, uh, in terms of my creative side, you know, it's good to go away and do something else, um, to clean out the cobwebs and to have perspective. So, you know, cleaning the uh, stains off the seats of Camrys can be very Zen, man. Trust me. You know, when you don't know what that stain is and the guys, that it, and it's fun, you hang out with those guys that clean the cars mm. manager, but I didn't know anything about it. And th there's a white stain in the back seat, man. I, I don't want to get too specific, but nobody wants to clean the white stain. You know what I'm saying. That's, could be a cream, could be a milk stain, could be formula, could be. I'm telling you, I, and I know how to get that stain out now, but um, that's you, these are the things you learn. How do you get a mysterious white stain out of a backseat of a Camaro? The thing about stains now, everybody has their specialty. Now, you've first got to define what the stain is because there's you got your tannin stains, you got your protein stains, you know, you got your uh, straight out you know stains that are just dirt. You know, then, you know, um, you know, if, if it's a coffee stain, the question is, you know, is it straight coffee or did it have cream in it or did it have sugar? Which means you know, the sugar affects it. And is it if it's a human stain, can I that's going to then there's some protein in there. You got it. So you need something different to get rid of each stain. All right. Now, can we get back to talking to movies, please? <laughs> see how you're going to make this about your film because you're really good at spinning it. I want to see how you can spin the stain. I wasn't going to spin the stain bags addicted to fame. No. <laughs> you've done it, by the way, and I've noticed, and I'm fine with it because I like the movie, and this, this is a movie interview, but you've been able, and you talk about this in the movie, you became Soundbite sound Sammy Yeah. I'm, in this interview. I'm trying not to be too Soundbite Sammy with you because I became very good at that. Yeah, so a couple times I've asked a question and it went to the movie, which is fine because it's a fine answer. You, so anyway, you know how you do it, right? You know, I repeat the question back to you as, Oh yes. Well, I think that's very true. When I was sixteen years old, sixteen years old, I spent a lot of time in the bathroom, and here's why. And then, you know, you say it in a sentence, and you're done. You know, I mean, that's that's how you do those. You know, but I'm trying to not be soundbite Sammy. That's great. And do you know uh, another Vermont um, from uh, celebrity Johnny Azer? Oh yeah, Johnny A. Absolutely. I put him on TV. Did you really? Yeah. Hey, Johnny A. Yeah. Nope. He's amazing. Yeah, he totally is amazing. He was yeah. actually, you know, he's from Rutland. That's why I thought of him. Yeah, Johnny would walk around town with, um, she's probably a Walkman or a CD player on, listening to music like all day long. You know, probably some of his own stuff too. He's amazing dude. Very, very, very talented dude. Yeah, I'm going to try, uh, if we have time, I'll put uh, one of his songs at the end of this interview since he's a local native. Sounds cool. Very cool. Yeah, he's a great guy. Well, uh, Thanks a lot. And so we can uh, see your movie on iTunes, on Amazon, on our site, proudlyresents.com slash Anna. And uh, how else can people contact or find out about you? They can go to edgewoodstudios.com or addictedtofame.com and find out more about us as, as to where, what theaters it's playing in as well and all the digital platforms that you can find the movie. And, the movie, you know, the way we all consume entertainment is changing. And so the way we're releasing the movie is 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 new for me this is you know having not released a movie in quite a while it's uh interesting to come back and see everything's really changed and and how the internet has played such a huge role in leveling the playing field for independence is pretty cool to watch 
Yeah, and uh, if you like our show, I would say go on Facebook and tweet it out. But the same with this movie. I think that's the best way to get out. If you like the movie, go on Twitter, go on Facebook, let people know that it exists. Yeah, and, and that's the thing with this movie is that we, we don't have the advertising or marketing budget to be able to put a, a bunch of ads out or have a big campaign. So, you know, if you do like the movie, please share because um, that's how it's going to find its audience is is through that word of mouth and no other way. So. Oh, great. Well, thank you very much. It was nice to meet you. I ask you, I, I saw from your website that you interviewed a lot of the hosts at Mystery Science Theater 3000. You haven't asked me one MST3K question. I'm very surprised. Go ahead. Tell me about it. What... I directed Time Chasers, which is one. Did, did you know, did you ever seen that episode? No, I never saw it. You never saw a Time Chasers episode or MST3K? No, I was reading and I saw you had connections. I, I wasn't sure that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, listen, I, we were no man, Manos, Hands of Fate, but, you know. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard to be well, competent. What is it like watching them do their thing to your movie? I, well, I mean, they had one tough job. First of all, I got to, when they do your movie, they don't just steal it or anything. They pay you to do it. So it's a transaction. And they ended up um, being very cool about it. And, and I, you know, if you can put your ego aside, it's a whole lot of fun. Because especially with our the movie that they did for us was my very first feature, and it was very crudely shot, and they they ripped it up good. But boy, it was very funny, and um, and and I, the first joke was the, they took my title credits as a David Giancola film, my first movie ever, and they go, a "David Giancola film is not something that you want to see," you know. So the first shot on me was really hard, and after that, I said, "Okay, we're ready for the party. Let's let's just go with it." and and uh, I had a good time. I loved it, you know. And and it got and, and it found a new audience for Time Chasers. So, you know, I got no complaints. I love those guys. W was there anything that did hurt at some point? Sure. That that first one hurt. Um, but you know, some and some of the actors were not particularly that happy with. But I thought it was hilarious that I thought it was hilarious that the movie got that kind of attention. You know, um, and, and and a lot of their stuff was really very funny. Um, so no, I, I really wasn't hurt by it at all. Uh, and I talked to them afterwards too, and they were very kind of skittish, like, uh, are you okay, dude? Are you still really hate it? I said, no, dude, it was great, you know? So, no, I, I loved it. I'm a fan. And we were, we were fans of the show. I mean, this was a while back. We were all trading the show back and forth. It wasn't on up here on cable, so we were trading the show back and forth, you know, here at the studio on VHS back in those days. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, to have those guys call us and want to take our little $150,000 movie and, uh, and mock it. I'm sure they spent more money mocking it than we spent making it. So it was an honor. It really was. Do you want to now just tell them to fuck off? Like, screw you, Frank? I don't. I don't. I think those guys at Best Brains are cool. I wish they, I, I can't believe they canceled them. So, no. I mean, I really like those guys. That's great. That was... Tell them to fuck off. I really don't. Say again, I'm sorry. I don't want to tell them to fuck off. I really, I'm very pleased with what they did. Are, now, have you talked to directors that want to tell them that? You know, um, there's a guy who, uh, John Mathos, does a horrible movie night here in L.A., and he asked directors for the permission before showing the movie. And there's a movie that he asked the guy permission. He was great until he said it, it's called Horrible Movie Night. And the guy freaked out. I said, how dare you say my movie's horrible? You know. See, I think you have to have a sense of humor in this business. I mean, it, it, that's kept me in the business. Otherwise, I would have gotten out. And, you know, they screen... Listen, they screen, well, I mean, they screen it illegally, but I don't do anything about it because it's, an, you know, what am I going to do? They screen the Mystery Science Theater version of Time Chasers theatrically in clubs and stuff around the country. And, 
you know, this is my first movie. I mean, I, I mean, I screwed it up really bad, man. You know, I learned everything by doing. So it's all, and that's the problem. It was there for all immortality. You know, all my mistakes were there and they got to riff on them. And uh, that's fine. But a lot of people genuinely liked the movie and, and it, it, it got the movie a whole new audience. So I got no complaints. You know, if you can't laugh at yourself, um, you're going to end up in a bad place. You really, especially in the entertainment business, you got to be able to laugh at yourself because you, you you can't hit it out of the ballpark every time. Nobody can. Nobody does. You made it a point that you didn't go to film school, that you made your first film. Do you still stand by that after watching the film again, your first film? That my first film is a complete mess? Yeah, I do stand by that. But everyone sees it. Like your college film, my college roommate made the worst film. You can see and you can appreciate as a director the, the marks. He had like huge marks for people to, to stand on. You can see their feet. The, like tape around it. My, my the, this, the, the two things that really bugged me about Time Chasers is that I didn't really understand. This is so embarrassing to talk about. I can't believe you're getting me to talk about this. I didn't, you know the line, you're, you don't cross the line in a movie. You know, the proscenium, meaning that if an actor's facing one, one way, you don't have him face the other way. I, that was, there were a few scenes where that just got lost on me. Still learning, and and damn it, if I cross the line, I didn't just cross the line; I annihilated the line. You know, we're acting. One actor's going this way, the next actor's going the same way, and I, that and and some bad, uh, you know, double exposures. I just, it's that that's harder for me to watch than anything Mystery Science Theater added to it, because all those mistakes you can't go back and fix them. You know, they're just there. So, but again, the film got seen by a lot more people than would have ever seen it otherwise. So, you know, I got no complaints. That's great. All right. Well, good. It was nice meeting you. Pleasure meeting you too. So, thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, check out this film. Find Time Chaser. We'll do an illegal thing in my living room. Sounds very good. So, have an illegal screening on your own and check out Addicted to Fame. Adam, that, we're, we're out of time for this interview.